what will we do with our pain? What is our pain trying to teach us? Is pain a necessary part of the transformational process of becoming whole? These are the questions Seth Haynes addresses in his book, Coming Clean. And Seth joins us in this episode of Let the Music Play podcast as we discuss our return to our inner child, how forgiveness is the predecessor of peace, and as Rumi said, how the only remedy for the pain is the pain. Hi, I'm Ashton Gustafson, and welcome to Let the Music Play. For me, the inability to be who I was designed to be as a child, idiosyncrasies and all, is the very thing that drove me to cope first with perfectionism, yes. second with with money and work and acquisition, and then finally and ultimately with boots. Hey guys, Ashton Gustafson here and welcome back to another episode of Let the Music Play podcast. This is where we chat about what it looks like, what it feels like, and what it means to make music with your life, your relationships, and your career. Uh, So I got to fully disclose this. A couple years ago, one of my best friends said, there's a guy named Seth Haynes. You need to follow him. Uh, He's written a book called Coming Clean, and uh, his journey and his story and his light that he puts into the world uh, is something beautiful. So I took those notes and kind of put them in my journal a little bit, and then about a week ago, uh, he said, hey, I really think you need to entertain getting Seth on the podcast. So I got the book. I read it. I loved it. Uh, we're going to get into it today. Uh, and with that being said, uh, it's a joy and an honor to introduce Seth Haynes to the podcast. Seth, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Absolutely, man. So um, where do we begin when when you sit down with someone you don't know and you kind of have that conversation of who are you and, and, and the work you put into the world? Where do you begin with somebody? Yeah, I think if somebody asks me um, who I am, that, that's always a little bit of a, a quandary for me um, for a lot of reasons, because who, who are we? Are we the sum of what we do? Um, and I know that that's not a question that throw everyone into existential angst, yep. but sometimes it does me. So, yep. uh, But for purposes of the question, I guess I would say I'm a trained attorney. Uh, I'm a writer. I'm a father of four boys, uh, the husband of one woman. And um, generally speaking, I'm curious about life. Beautiful. And so um, I'm connecting a few dots here. How much of your time, uh, if any, is still connected to practicing law and now writing? Are you, are you still involved in, in the law side of things, or have you fully made a transition into uh, making a career out of writing? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a full transition into the career of writing. I would say that right now I do about 10% of my work give or take, is still in the legal practice. Gotcha. Uh, when, I, when I left, I took um, three or four clients with me that were good friends and sort of said, I will always do your legal work. Um, but as you know, as we kind of walked down this road, I guess I left last October, and as I've walked down this road, I've just tried to kind of increase incrementally more and more the writing uh, side of life. When did you know that um, there was something for you in writing? And that's hard to say. Um, the truth is, I love the practice of law as an intellectual exercise. Mm. I, I did it for uh, 12 years before I quit, and probably 
it became it became very apparent to me probably in my first or second year of law school that I needed to do something to sort of occupy my time and give me a little bit of a creative break. And so I started writing uh, short stories and um, just, you know, poetry, anything, music, songs, anything I could do to sort of give myself a creative break. Um, so I wrote pretty steadily through about probably my eighth or ninth uh, year of the practice of law. And there was a season there where my son uh, became really, really ill. And um, in that season, I was wrestling with what it meant to have a sick child. What did it mean for God not to show up? Um, and that was the first time I wrote anything long form. And I actually wrote a novel, which is still sitting on a computer somewhere. Um, but that was the moment where I knew that writing was, was a little bit more than an outlet for me. It was a way of making sense of the world. Um, in that process though, I uh, started drinking really heavily. I had always been a pretty solid drinker. I'm a pretty talented drinker. I can hold a lot of alcohol. So, so that's a, that's a good, like if I can do anything as well as Michael Jordan can play basketball, it's a drink. Yes. Uh, but there became, there came a point where I, I got a little out of control with my alcohol. Um, and that was in that year after my son was so, so sick and I developed a really deep dependency upon alcohol. And when it was time for me to sort of walk out of that dependency and into something new, uh, my therapist at the time said, hey, I'd like you to consider uh, writing this journey out because your primary mode of communication seems to be writing. Hmm. And so I did. And that journal became what is now my book, Coming Clean. Um, and, and I think, you know, when that book went under contract, it became pretty apparent to me that, uh, the course of my life was sort of, uh, shifting. Wow. So, um, as I read this book and, and it really is this 90 day reflection on you, um, which is like, it was an awakening. It was also transformational, um, there was a lot of surrender in this thing. Um, you would go bird's eye, then you would zoom in and get really close. I mean, there was, there was all these angles, I think, that you took uh, to really the human experience. This isn't a book about drinking. Um, this, this, this is a book about coping, numbing, um, neglecting our pain. Um, and... You know, we always talk on here, the old Richard Rohr quote, if, if we don't allow our pain to transform us, we'll transmit it. Um, and so where, where do we begin with kind of talking about um, we all have something that, that, that we will choose to numb the pain? Um, and so I don't want people to just hear this conversation and go, well, I don't have a drinking problem, so I don't need to listen to this conversation. It's it's much broader and bigger and universal than just substance substance abuse. Yeah, I, I think um, maybe a, a good way to preface it. I was speaking with a friend a week ago, and he was saying that uh, he he had this full day of things planned out, things he had to you know it was a really tight schedule. He had to move from one thing to the next. And his entire day was super dependent on making sure that each piece fell into place. And around 10 o'clock, his wife called, and she was at the park, and the car had died. Uh, and he went into this complete tailspin, emotional tailspin. It, it disrupted his day. And, um, and so, of course, he starts being upset and angry. 
And we were sitting down uh, that afternoon. We were already scheduled to sit down. And, and he said, you know, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I got angry. I got upset. I started actually blaming my wife. I started, you know, playing these blame narratives. Like, well, why could, how could she do this to me? Even though I knew it wasn't her fault, you know? And um, he said, I know everybody does this, but I've heard you talk a lot about, you know, are there pain points underlying our, underlying our behavior? Um, and I started to wonder, you know, is there a pain point here? Um, and so we started to un, sort of unpack his emotional experience that day. And um, as we kind of went back and back and back, hey, when is the first time you felt that sort of sense of, of loss of control? And when did you start playing the blame game and all these things? He took me back to a period when he was a child. And on Sundays, he could never quite get ready for church. He was always the last person in his family to get ready for church. And it was so bad that his parents would go and sit in the car and sort of passive aggressively wait for him. And then when he would finally make it to the car, he just felt so guilty and so full of shame. Like he made everybody late, he let everybody down. Um, and there was no way for him to sort of overcome this burden. And so what he started to do as he got older, um, was he tried to control his schedule so that he could alleviate that sense of guilt and shame and pain. And when anybody would come and disrupt that, that control mechanism, um, so that he could, you know, make people happy and please people, he would go into this complete tailspin of blame shifting. And he started to say, you know, I'm, I'm realizing now that the pain of my childhood was completely unresolved you know, as we're talking, uh, I'm seeing that this was unresolved and that my mechanism, my coping mechanism to try to deal with that pain wasn't to actually sit with experience, understand, deal with that pain. Instead, it was to create these mechanisms of control and to foist these on everyone else yeah. so that when things don't go my way, you know, I start blame shifting. Um, and, and it was kind of a, a calcifying and clarifying moment for me of saying, oh, okay, yeah, see, this, this is a prime example playing out right in front of my eyes that it's not always about booze or pills, and it's not always about the big trauma. You know, it's not always about, mm -hmm. like, the crisis of faith that I had as a child or abuse or loss or whatever. Sometimes these very little pains, if we don't sort of examine them and sit with them, they can lead to behaviors that are very destructive in the long run, like blaming your wife for engine problems. It's not hers, you know? Absolutely. And so um, one of these, one of the great ideas I got and I gathered from your book was this concept of naming the pain, which you just helped this guy do. Um, do you, and this is kind of a bit off course, how often is some of this pain directly rooted to something in our childhood? that hasn't been resolved? Well, there's actually a really interesting article. Um, I'll try to send it to you. I just ran across it this week, so I'm not... A therapist actually sent it to me, so I'm not... I don't remember exactly the, the doctor's name, the person who wrote it, but... Um, it, but there's a doctor who's re recently written an article, and he says, yeah, and a lot of times, these like underlying childhood traumas lead to this pain that follows us all throughout life and motivates our behaviors in ways that we don't even understand. We don't even know because we don't take the time to stop and examine and look at it. Um, and this could be trauma, you know, from your formative years when you're four or five, six or seven, um, like it was for me, like it was for my friend, or it can be anything that happens in your adolescence years, even in college years. And, you know, you never stop experiencing pain. 
Um, But I think a lot of times these sort of formative pains of our early years do follow us through. And there's a lot of research um, and discussion on that right now. I'll try try to send you that that article and maybe you can uh, scan it and share it with your listeners. Um, uh, But but yeah, there are a lot of people writing on that. And there's a, a fantastic author named Gabor Mate, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but he wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and it walks through his experience um, in this Canadian recovery facility of walking with patients through their addiction. And in almost every story that he tells, there is some underlying childhood trauma. Almost everyone. And so I think when we're looking at you know, the narratives that we tell ourselves in our adult years, particularly the negative narratives and particularly the ones that are laden with emotions of guilt, shame, doubt, fear, um, any of these negative emotions. I think most of those things can be traced all the way back into our childhood. And for some of us, that was a long, long time ago. I mean, I I, I think that that's why I want to put such a spotlight on this idea. Um, I'm kind of with you. I'm not saying that this is 100% accurate, but like more often than not, um, you weren't ready for church on time. And and that has <laughs> that has made a mess out of your modern day schedule 20 years down the road. Um, and, yeah, and uh, it's put pressure on your wife and on your marriage yes. and on the way you raise your children, yeah. you know, and... and if you're not careful with these things, these, these things can spin out of control and before long you're on the splits and divorce and you have no idea what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so this first big theme I think I got from your book and coming clean was like first naming the pain. Like I think it takes a lot of courage and bravery to actually say I have pain and this is what it is. Um, th- that's a big feat. Um, especially I think for guys today, is just to say, I, yeah, I have pain. Um, and then you say that we need to sit in it. Um, I think you quote, you quote Rumi at some point, the only remedy for the pain is the pain. Um, when you say sit in the pain, hold my hand with that. Tell me, tell me your heart behind those words. Yeah, so one of the things that I think we're really quick to do, uh, particular pe- particularly people of the Christian faith, is we're really quick to get to the resurrection. Right? We don't want to sit through Lent. Yeah. We don't want to sit through the suffering. We don't want to sit through the things that hurt. And we want to be really quickly quick to say, Jesus rose from the dead. He beat death. He beat pain. I'm with Jesus, therefore I beat pain. But the truth is, there is a lot of emotional work that goes into actually being able to say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Jesus didn't come to give us a pain-free existence. Jesus didn't come to rescue us from every trial, sickness, tribulation, death, and disease, and to give us some self-actualized platinum version of our best life. He didn't do that. In fact, he didn't have that. In fact, when he went into the garden, he specifically prayed, God, don't make me go through pain. And although this isn't recorded in Scripture, you can almost hear Jesus, you can almost hear God saying to Jesus, Son, pain is your lot. Hmm. And pain is your lot because through much pain will come much comfort. 
much, you know, much suffering will produce much comfort for the life of the world. And so I think for me, it's important to realize that pain happens and that pain is going to keep happening. It's going to come. Um, and that for me to experience that without trying to shortcut it, without trying to jump straight to resurrection is a place where I can meet Jesus and where I can feel him bring comfort. So when I know the pain is sitting heavy in my soul, I can say, Jesus, did you ever feel pain like this? And I can wait and listen for him to say, <laughs> you kidding me? Yeah, I, I know pain, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what was the ultimate product of the pain? The ultimate product of the pain was comfort. And I, I think until we're, we're willing to sit in it and recognize it and sort of um, uh, be with our pain and let the comfort of God sort of take the poison out of that pain, yeah. we're just going to walk around lying to ourselves. Yeah. And by comfort, you're talking about healing. You're talking about peace, right? Yeah, yeah, healing and peace. And, you know, this may be a little bit too much, but, you know, there are some very real neurological things that happen Mm -hmm. when you sit with your pain, too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as I was going through my own uh, issues, and I had my my underlying uh, childhood trauma was that I was severely sick, I had asthma, and my parents, doing the best they knew how, brought me to a faith healer, and that faith healer told me when I was a child, if you have enough faith, you can be healed of asthma. And to this day, whenever I go anywhere, I carry an inhaler with me. I still have asthma, right? And so in that moment, and I knew I wasn't healed, and I knew I had as much faith as any child could muster, in that moment, I walked out of the church thinking, oh my gosh, either... I don't have enough faith. I'm not enough for God yeah. or God doesn't exist or he doesn't listen to me or doesn't care or whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for me, my childhood trauma was the loss of this intimacy, this relational God that I had sort of actualized. So um, when I was unpacking this with my therapist and talking to him about it, he said, no, here's what's happening. Every time you walk into church, Every time you hear someone say a prayer over your son, who at this point was sick um, and, and very sick, uh, every time you hear someone say God can heal, anytime you hear any of this language, there is a small part of your brain called the amygdala. And that amygdala is the storehouse of your emotional memory. And whenever you hear those words, you are immediately taken back to that faith healer mm. who told you you could be Uh, free if you had enough faith. And that pain point resonates through to today. And so your amygdala is over-firing. But instead of dealing with that pain, instead of facing that pain, instead of feeling the chemical rush and sitting in it and saying, okay, is this real danger or not? You drink yourself numb. And you don't deal with it. You don't sit with it. And so what he encouraged me to do is to sit in that pain. And he said, as you confront that pain over and over again, as you listen to people say, God can heal. And as you sit in that experience and then you go back to your childhood and you say, but I'm still alive. Mm -hmm. God is somehow still with me. Um, As you think about the present situation, but my son is still alive. He's still with me. As you begin to confront those pain points, you'll see 
that the danger is not there anymore. This, this emotional memory that you're nurturing, it doesn't really have any hold on you as a person. So the more you sit with this pain, the less your amygdala will freak out, overreact. And over time, you'll be able to sort of quell those emotions. And you know what? He was right. He was right. Rumi was right. Uh, you know, the more you sit with your pain, the more you face it, the more you realize that there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when that fear releases, you can really get to living a really beautiful expression of life. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is huge is, um, and maybe help me with this because I'm, I'm trying to sift this and, and hearing what you're saying, the ego is always going to be connected to that amygdala. The, the Seth Godin calls it the lizard brain, right? Fight, flat, or freeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and what you're saying is when you sit with the pain and you go into that dark place that typically is really, really quiet, um, what you then begin to hear and see and behold and eventually enjoy and empower your days from um, is who you are at the soul level, your essence, the true self. Um, yes. Yeah. Which, yeah. Which is who you've always been, by the way. Um, yet little things, uh, well, big things, events, catastrophic things will convince us to live out of that ego, that false self as a defense mechanism. Um, but the serenity and the comfort and the healing and the peace that comes into bearing that pain, um, only then can you experience the true beauty of resurrection. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And, and I'm, I might even say it this way. Um, the, the lizard brain, as you, as you say, or in the practice of law, we actually call it the reptilian brain. There's right. a whole practice uh, in the plaintiff side of law where if they can get you to think out of fear as a jury member, you're more likely right to give a, a verdict to the plaintiff mm -hmm. it's this whole idea and, and and so for me if i'm constantly reacting out of fear instead of sitting with my fear and saying now is this true or is this not is mm -hmm. god here or is he not um, does god abide or does he not is god for me or is he against me um, and in, unless i sit there in that moment of fear and say god come to me, comfort me, speak truth to me. If I don't do that, I will immediately try to kill that fear with something else. Right. Um, because that fear, that pain, it's too much, yeah. right? The fear of death, the fear of loss, the fear of abuse, the fear of scarcity, the shame, the guilt that come along with all those things, it's too much. And so if we don't have a comforting presence there in that moment and something to put us touch, in touch with who we actually are, um, then we'll react out of that fear 10 times out of 10. And so um, this 90-day look into your journey of uh, sobriety, um, you know, it begins with naming the pain. It, it, then, you, then we move into sitting with the pain. You then move into listening to those dark places, getting deep into the heart, the soul of things, hearing, hearing the voice of the divine. What I loved is that... <clears throat> It's almost like this book has more to do with forgiveness than anything else. And not necessarily forgiveness that maybe you specifically needed, but forgiveness that you needed to 
give to someone or some event in your past. Am I connecting those dots correctly? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to, I didn't realize um, how significant us forgiving others, moments, um, hurdles, challenges, whatever they, the childhood wound, whatever, whatever that may be, forgiving the individuals or the people or heck, just reality itself for what that was opens you into this beautiful world of healing, which only then can you say the divine God Trinity is mystery. Like you can't, you can't rejoice in mystery until you come to understand that which is forgiveness. Yeah, that's totally true. And I, and I think to, to build off that, like the middle piece before you can get into sitting in that divine mystery and in the beauty of that piece, I think the middle uh, uh, section of that is saying, if it is true that I have fear, that I have guilt, that I have shame, that I have anger, hatred, bitterness, any of these negative emotions that come from a particular person or event, right? If I have these things, and we know that all humans do, then how can I move into peace if I can't sit with those emotions, recognize them, and ultimately release them? Hmm. And how could I ever release those emotions if I don't forgive, if I don't move in the way of forgiveness? Because any act of unforgiveness is an act of holding on to the negative emotions, the negative narratives. And until we can forgive others and forgive ourselves and forgive the narratives, we can't release those things. And again, I think a powerful example of this to me is when Jesus is on the cross and he, you know, the Son of God has been murdered. And he looks down on his murderers in the moment, not even, we're not talking weeks, years you know, later, we're talking in the moment. Yep. And he looks down and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And he takes this whole narrative, this mocking narrative, uh, this narrative of being misunderstood, this murderous narrative. And in the moment, he releases them from any uh, harshness or bitterness or anger, um, even though they're spinning these narratives as he's speaking. And so if we're going to, if we're going to be people of Jesus's way, then I would say that all acts of, uh, of Jesus start in that way, start in the way of forgiveness. If I'm going to live a life that is Christian, then I have to live in the way of forgiveness. Otherwise I'll keep carrying fear and bitterness and anger. Yeah. If anyone could have played the victim card in that moment in history, it was that moment. Yeah. (laughs) And, yeah. and and yet he go he he doesn't say can you believe look at what they're doing it's like hey they don't they don't know what's going on I mean I'll only I think the humanity of Jesus in that moment for us to grab hold of is um, that that it, those words are spoken from a place of essence um, absolutely those those words in the midst of great wounding are being spoken from a place that can never be wounded. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and the great wounding there is not just his the wounding of his ego. 
right? It's, it's, it's the wounding of the world. He's bearing the wounding of the world. And yet he's able to step out of that and say, I forgive. I forgive. I forgive. It would be enough if it were just his own wounding. Yes. That would be enough. That would be enough of an example. That's all example I need. But it was a much greater existential angst and existential wounding. And yet he still moves into that place of forgiveness. And so for us, that's, that's, to me, that's the essence of, of what it means to be a Christ follower is to be able to say, I've been wounded, I'm continually wounded, and yet I choose to walk in the way of forgiveness. I choose to release fear, I choose to release shame, I choose to release any of these negative emotions, and I choose instead to walk in the way of forgiveness. Yeah. And if, I mean, and then you've got the paradox of being able to look back on the other side of forgiveness and saying these, these wounds, these are, these are what actually healed me. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So, and, and so when we don't allow ourselves to get silent, to be still, to sit with the pain you write about, and I love this phrase, the nurturing of our wounds. Um, I think at one point you were like, we cuddle our wounds. We identify with them rather than giving them space to lead to reconciliation. Um, we like nurture these wounds. You want to walk with me on that and kind of give me your bird's eye thoughts of like, why do we nurture these wounds? Well, I I mean, I guess you could look at it uh, several different ways. Um, And I know that there, this is a, this is an open point of criticism because I know you can nurture wounds in a way that, um, that always holds on to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so like you're, you're, you're nurture, like you would nurture a child, you continually feed it. You don't want to release it. Uh, it gives you, know, you some identity. It. Yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it would be easy for me to nurture those wounds and to say, you know, I'm a burned out evangelical who was, you know, burned out by the church at the age of five or six or seven because of what this, this faith healer did in my life and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, but that's, that's not the right way, right? The way is to give the, the space to your wounds, to experience them, to go back into them fully and deeply, and in some sense, um, nurture them so that God can come in and then say, now let's do the hard work of healing. Let's do the hard work of releasing. Let's do the hard work of letting those things go so that you can be a whole person and the true person that you were meant to be. Uh, so, you know, to get back to your point, so that you can be your true self. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, to me, if, if we don't at least acknowledge the woundedness enough to allow the comfort to come, um, then we'll never get to the true essence of ourselves. But at the same point, if we nurture them too much and don't let go of them, we'll also take on a false identity. So it's a little bit of a tricky, tricky balance. It is. And you... You state at some point in the book that this isn't a, a one and done, a once and for all, like, welcome to the name of your daily work um, of this idea of forgiveness. Because um, I think you, you say, like, without forgiveness, we can't receive forgiveness. Uh, without forgiveness, we compromise our unity with the Spirit. And without unity, where is the peace? Without peace, coping mechanisms make much more sense. Um, Mm -hmm. so like we will numb out, we will check Mm -hmm. out, we will shove it to the wayside. Um, 
but maybe maybe a great prayer is to ask for eyes of forgiveness as we enter our days. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, what's interesting about about the book is that um, you know people uh, people have talked about what did it mean to forgive the faith healer, and I've said, you know, look, there were things that I did not write about in the book. There were people, even when I was wrestling through the that journaling process. There were people that I did not journal about. You know, this this wasn't something that I wrote for the purpose of being published as a book. This was literally my personal journal, right? And so yeah. there were people, even as I was going through the practice of forgiveness of this faith healer, there were people that I knew in my brain that I needed to forgive and that I was refusing to forgive, mm-hmm. right? And so even after I dealt with this one act of this, this faith healer when I was a child— there have been, you know, three years now of daily practice of, you know, am I ready to bring this wounding to you now and allow you to, to, to teach me the way of forgiveness, God? Because there are still deep woundings in my life that I have to daily, daily, daily say, teach me to forgive, teach me to forgive, teach me to forgive. I had a wounding in the last year and a half that was so deep that there were six months that I did not want to do the work of forgiveness. And finally... My wife said, you know, you, you wrote 55,000 words on forgiveness. You know, may, maybe it's time that you put some of those things into play. So, yeah. Yeah. so, so the truth is it is daily work. The yeah. truth is it's hard work. And the truth is if we don't do it, we will numb out. We, you know, if I can't let go of the person who wounded me, if I can't let go of those wounds and those wounds hurt, you know, there's really only one other alternative, and that's to not make them hurt by doing something else. Yeah. You you mentioned at one point your therapist called uh, called it the cave of the soul, um, saying you need to go into the cave of the soul and tell me what you see, tell me what you hear. Um, walk with me on that. On on this, I, is this where you go? Like when we're we're sitting here talking about okay, what's this look like in real life to to forgive, to address the pain, um, to listen to the wound. Um, and it's a metaphor, but I'm, I'm asking it kind of in a broad way. Is the cave of the soul where you go each day to do this work? Uh, yeah, yes. You know, ideally. I should say ideally. This yeah. is where you go each day, right? Um, the, the metaphor that the therapist used... Uh, and I can't remember if I was super clear about this in the book or not, but, um, but he actually talked about the well. And what he was saying is you need to put yourself in a place where you cannot run away. Right? You cannot run away from the pain. You are locked up with the pain. You have to stare down the pain. And so you need to go down into the well, sit in a chair in the well, put the pain in another chair in the well across from you and look at it and stare at it until it has no more power. Right? So, so this is, this is his initial metaphor. And then I began to think, well, for me, it doesn't feel like that. To me, there's still escape hatches. There's still a way out. But uh, for me to wrestle down pain, it meant to go deep, deep, deep into a solitary place, a quiet place, a place where others couldn't disrupt me. So, um, you know, for practical purposes, it's a place where, you know, your, your, your wife, your kids aren't going to come running in disrupting you, um, and get alone and get quiet and get in a dark place and allow whatever happens to happen there. And there's this old story about St. Anthony that I love. 
And St. Anthony was wrestling down um, what he believed to be uh, demons in the desert. And he went into this cave, and in the cave the demons were waiting. And the demons beat him up and ripped him up and, and about killed him, and he dragged himself out. He was actually dragged out by uh, one of his uh, attendees, and, and he said, I've got to go back in. So they drag him back into the middle of the cave, and right before, as the story goes, right before the demons rip him to shreds, a powerful light comes in, it blows up everything in the cave, it fills the cave, it runs out the demons, and St. Anthony would say that I knew that that was the light of Christ pushing out the demons from that cave. And I think metaphorically, that's what I experienced, right? Mm -hmm. I would go to this pain every day, and I would wrestle down these, these demons of doubt, these demons of shame and guilt and pain, and ultimately just going into that place, going into that cave day after day, what I found was that ultimately the light of Christ came in, and it pushed out that pain and said, hey, I'm here with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to sit with you here. I'm going to be with you. And that's going to be enough comfort. And you know what? Over time, it's been true. It is enough comfort. And would you say that as we metaphorically leave this cave, that that's where the unity of the present self reconnects with the essence and the childhood self um, for us to go out and, and, literally be who we're meant to be in the world. I hope that's true. Yeah. I hope that's true of my own life. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, there, I, I talk a lot in the, in the book, I write a lot in the book about um, the unity that I felt with Christ as a child. Um, and I didn't even know all the language. You know, exactly. I didn't know the God yes. language. Yeah. Um, but I would go out in this mosquito grove in Texas and I would sit there and I would play Star Wars or whatever. And I would feel like, I am here alone with God, and we are playing Star Wars together. That's the craziest, cheesiest thing you could ever say. But that's really how I felt, yeah. right? No. Yeah. Um, and then there was a disruption. There was a disruption when I was a child. And, and, and the hope is that by sitting in that cave, and what I experienced is by sitting in that cave, and when uh, the presence of the divine did come in and did say, we're pushing out the darkness, we're pushing out the pain, I am comfort enough for you, when that happened, I did feel as if I were like transported back to that mesquite grove. Yeah. I was who I was, yeah. and here I was with God. I was a little bit more jaded, a little bit more cynical, a little bit more wise of the world, and yet somehow I was six again in the mesquites with Jesus, you know, or with God, or with the presence of the divine. And that, to me, was a moment of saying, oh, boy, there's something here. Mm -hmm. Like, this is the way forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We enter the world whole and complete. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, such a big idea. We just had Dr. Kelly Flanagan on. Uh, he wrote a book called Lovable, just came out not long ago. Um, and man, he has great insight on getting back into the contact with pre-wounding in the childhood self. Um, I think that's... It, if, if if our listeners are listening, Dan, you're like, are these two guys really talking about chatting with their elementary self? Um, it's it's way deeper than that. There's more going on there, but there's there's something really beautiful and sacred uh, from that age, that spirit, that innocence, um, and the whole idea that innocent, like in the Latin, means without wounding. Um, I just love that. Um, well, and, and and here's the question that I would ask to somebody who would who would pose that question, 
Um, I would say if you don't get back in touch with the essence of who you were as a child, can you ever be comfortable in your own skin? Hmm. That's a good word. Is this a reality? I mean, for me, the inability to be who I was designed to be as a child, idiosyncrasies and all, is the very thing that drove me to cope first with perfectionism, second with, with money and work and acquisition, and then finally and ultimately with boots. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one mechanism didn't solve the problem, and so I just kept moving down mechanisms. And it wasn't until I was able to say, you know, this is who I am. I'm comfortable with who I am. I've learned to experience the presence of the divine with who I am. That I was finally able to be free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. So if people are listening today, and and maybe. Um, Maybe some things have been just brought up as they've heard this conversation. Um, and maybe there's this little thing of like, oh man, am I using that to numb out? Am, am I avoiding that pain? Am I not going into the dark cave of the soul? Um, what's step one? I mean, let's not talk about step 90. No, let's not go to day 90. What would you encourage someone into step one of saying... I have not allowed my tra- my pain to transform me. Um, yeah. The, the good news is, if they're there, they're already at step one. Good. Yeah. In fact, they're already they're already probably past step one. Wow. So so the the more if you want to talk about step one, um, I was at a conference, a pastor's conference, uh, about a month and a half ago, and somebody came to me and said, "I have no pain." <laughs> it was a literal quote that came out of mouth. I can't identify the pain. I have no pain. What am I supposed to do? And it was one of those moments where you stifle the chuckle, you know. Yeah. And yeah. about three minutes into the conversation, we identified a pain point that was pretty significant, right? Yeah. So we all have pain. If you're at the point of saying, um, you know, I'm using X, Y, Z, whether it's an eating disorder or over, you know, overeating, undereating, puking, Percocet, booze, television, porn, video games. Theology. Theology, yes. (laughs) God, it's a huge one, right? Like over-intellectualizing everything to have the perfect answer, studying all the books, whatever. Whatever it is, if you you are at the point of realizing that you do X, Y, or Z to numb or cope with the pain, then you're actually at probably step two or three. Mm. Um, So the first thing I would tell people is ask yourself, have you sat with your own pain, yeah. right? And, and if you have not, then ask yourself, what is the thing, that, what is the pain, right? Identify the pain and then say, what is the thing that I use to numb the pain? Okay, now that's where we are in your timeline now. Yeah. If you've identified that thing, then the next step is confession, period. And it doesn't have to be some sort of like, you know, you go to your priest or you go to your pastor or you even necessarily go to your wife or your best friend or whatever. But what I mean is to give voice to the addiction, give voice to the attachment, the habit, whatever it is you want to call it. Sit down and write down the particulars. You know, I am struggling with X and X comes from the fact that I don't want to deal with pain. Y. Right. So write it down, write down your confession. Um, And then the next thing I would say is take that thing to a trusted friend. After you've, you know, sit with the confession for a minute, a day, a week, 
see if it still rings true, if it still feels true. And if it does, then go to your priest, go to your wife, go to your best friend, um, go to, you know, your therapist, uh, go to somebody and, and confess it out loud with your mouth and to another person. Because the scripture that I read says that confess, you know, we should confess our sins one to another so that we could be healed. Healing starts with the confession. Um, and until we bring people and invite people into that process of uh, numbing the pain, mm-hmm. uh, we, won't, we won't find healing. And I think there's even some people that maybe the word confession is, is overwhelming. It has mm-hmm. so much baggage. We're just talking about naming the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like w- when you can name something, when you can, uh, when you can name the fear, when you can name the pain, all of a sudden it, it loses its claws a little bit, not fully. Um, but I think the idea that we're getting here at is look, if the word confession y- you can't do today, okay, name this thing, um, call it out, call it what it is. Allow yourself to say, this is not serving me. Um, this is, this is enabling the wound to not heal. And I think a beautiful thing transpires there just with saying, Hey, this is it. Cause the guy came up to you and he's like, I don't have pain. He, what, what he really didn't have was a name. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and that, that is, I mean, I think for so many of us, confession was laden with, Uh, other connotations, right? I mean, so often you confess something and then there's a a follow-up abuse, right? Uh, Particularly in the church, you confess something and then you have to walk through, you know, walk down the aisle and say it and bear the shame and the weight of the entire church. Or, you know, if you're a more liturgical ill, perhaps you have to do spiritual push-ups and 75,000 prayers and the rosary and all these things. And there, there are all these connotations and baggages, just baggage after baggage after baggage, just along with, with confession. And all I want to tell people is, hey, let, let's short-circuit that. Like, let's not even go to that step next, okay? Let's start with something as simple as giving voice to it, writing it down. Yeah. And then you strategize what is the safest place to give that confession to somewhere, someone else. Yep. You know, who's the safest person in your life that you can confess that baggage to without fear of retribution? Yep. And start there. Yep. And once you start there and keep walking, it'll be easier and easier to confess those things to people who are less safe. Because ultimately you'll find out that they don't have power over you. Yeah, that's a good word. That's a good word. Oh man, so good. Love it. Um, so from, from on behalf of all of us, uh, beautiful work, beautiful memoir of 90 days. Guys, I can't tell y'all enough. Um, check out the book Coming Clean. And again, this isn't a book about substance abuse. This is a book about um, finding language, naming it, saying what we're numbing our pain with. And I think no matter where you are in your journey, um, it can be it can be a great great light uh, in your path. So before we go, uh, I always ask people a couple of these questions. Um, I want to ask you this. The first one being this: What's currently keeping you curious? Hmm. That's a great question. I think what's I think the thing. Well, if there's one thing that is currently keeping me curious. It is, can we really experience 
the presence of God in and around us and in our daily lives as we go. Beautiful. Any books you're reading to help cultivate that question? Uh, a lot of books that I'm reading right now to cultivate that question. Um, I just finished uh, the Tozer book, The Pursuit of God. I think I've been putting it off for 20 years, and I finally <laughs> read it. Um, but then outside of that, I'm asking that question not just in the sort of uh, sort of spiritual hoity-toity kind of way, but I'm asking it, can I experience the presence of God in my daily life as it relates to um, the envir- environmental impact of the clothes I buy uh, or the food I consume. And so um, I just started this morning, actually, uh, reading a book called Introducing Evangelical Echotheology, and it's by Brenner Butler and Swoboda. Hmm. Um, And I'm hoping to start saying, like, how how and what are the ways that I can experience um, the presence of God in my care of the environment, in my care of... Um, you know, just consumerism, the world around me and all those things. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, I guess that's a good place to start. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, next one's this, what advice would you give to your younger self? (laughs) Don't take yourself so seriously, man. (laughs) I get that often. I get that often. I bet. Um, love it. Well, man, I, I tell you what, um, Super grateful for your time and energy. Um, I really think that this dialogue uh, is going to be something that will get people, um, give people great eyes and light to look into their lives. And I know that uh, uh, maybe one day we can get you back on the podcast and uh, see if we can have you on and maybe dive into some other conversations. I love it. I appreciate this. It's a lot of fun. So tell me, where can we send our listeners uh, to support you and your work? Is the best place to go your website, Amazon? Where do you want us to go? Yeah, I think uh, probably SethHaines.com. You can get my books at SethHaines.com slash books. Uh, and if you'd like to receive my uh, bi-monthly newsletter, which I think you referenced earlier when you were talking about the contentment piece, uh, that's at tinyletter.com slash Seth. Haynes, awesome. H-A-I-N-E-S. Awesome. SethHaines.com, guys. H-A-I-N-E-S. SethHaines.com. Make sure you go there. I know you're going to find a lot of beauty uh, and stuff to unpack the mystery with in your life. Seth, on behalf of all of us, thanks so much, man. Man, thank you very much. It was so much fun. Okay, brother. We'll talk soon. Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Seth. Make sure you go to SethHaines.com, get you a copy of this book, Coming Clean. I know he and his writings will be a great light for you, for your life, and your relationships. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebird sing, and be love. <laughs>